You can open your Bibles to uh, James chapter 5. James chapter 5, and we're going to be considering verses 12 through 18. And James chapter 12, 5, uh, verse 12 through 18. James says this, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He has to sing praises. Is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church. And they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. And if he, he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. One of the most wonderful things about parenthood is teaching your children how to talk and how to communicate. There's a lot of things involved for a child to do that. First, it's just putting the letters together to, you know, your ABCs, then it comes words. And, and my first son, he, he really started talking early. He, he was fascinated by communication. I can remember there were times I would be talking to my wife when Paul was a baby, and, and he would just look at my mouth, uh, mesmerized by human speech. Uh, right now, with my two-year-old, my wife and I are, are trying to help him uh, just put two words together. And, and, and Joel, sweet, my sweet second boy, he's really taking a sweet time learning how to talk. He's not as interested in, in talking as much as Paul was. He, he really likes to roar like a dinosaur. Um, but last week was the first time he was, he was able to put two words together. And I was, I was so happy for him. But there's more to just putting words together. We have to teach a, a young people to the right grammar, how to ask politely for something, how to not to be shy when talking to strangers. Um, we have to teach them new vocabulary, vocabulary what words mean. Um, we have to teach them about words that are unwholesome and words that are good and right and pleasing to God. And, yet, and when we become believers, we, we also have to learn how to talk in a new way. We too, like ch little children, have, a, have to learn a new vocabulary. We have to learn a, a new language, uh, in, in a sense. Maybe not Greek or Hebrew, not an angelic language, uh, Rather, it's a new way of relating to people, and, and a, we have to learn a new way of relating to God himself. God wants us to speak to people and to himself with a new kind of approach, and not, a new kind of heart, a new kind of character. So in today's passage, we're going to be reminded about the, the most important facets of communication when it comes to speaking to other people when it comes to speaking to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Last Sunday we focused on the topic of patience. 
James said, when your leaders oppress you, the most important thing to do is to wait for the Lord's final return with a patient heart. Uh, Wait like a farmer who waits for the harvest. Be patient like the prophets who suffered, not for their sin, but for being faithful to the Lord. They were persecuted for their, 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 their message. Be patient like Job. We've seen the outcome of the Lord's compassion and, and mercy at the end of his life and at the end of uh, salvation, redemptive history. If Job can persevere seeing the gospel through the haze and fog of the time period, period he lived in, we can persevere in the light of the clear vision of the gospel we have in these last day of God's salvation plan. On this Sunday morning, we're going to move to, the ch- to, to chapter 5, verse 12 through 17, in order to consider two more topics of great importance. We're going to focus our minds on the subject of truthfulness in our speech to others, and we're going to focus on the power of prayer, the power of prayer to God. And so I have, with that, I have two points for you this morning. Number one, a wholehearted believer speaks to others with radical truthfulness. A wholehearted believer speaks to others with radical truthfulness. Verse 12, James says this, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. See, true Christianity demands that you surrender all of your heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If Christ gave all of His life for you, then the very least you could do is give all of your life to Him. But a heart fully given over to Jesus bears the fruit of righteous conduct. True religion finds as its basis the objective, historical, atoning, sacrificial work of Christ on the cross. And that will prove itself, that salvation will prove itself by the way we communicate with other people. James begins this final instruction with a call to watch over what we say to each other in verse 12. But he begins verse 12, curiously enough, with the words, but above all. But above all. BDAG, the gold standard of New Testament Greek dictionaries, explains the phrase as a mark of precedence in importance or rank. You could translate uh, the phrase most importantly. Most importantly. And yet we kind of scratch our heads at this verse because uh, of, we think to ourselves, if you've been paying attention, really most of all, above all, most importantly, of all that James has said in this epistle, James now says that this is the most important command he's giving us about not swearing uh, with some funny oath, about being honest, really? It seems like an overstatement. It seems like it's exaggerated. Falsely swearing an oath is the most important command we're to keep? And the answer is yes. And this is why. James is quoting Jesus' command in the Sermon on the Mount. Go to Matthew 5 with me. And Jesus is discussing the topic of false vows and using the Lord's name in vain. 
Turn to chapter 5, verse 33 through 37. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verse 33 through 37. Jesus says, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond this is of the evil one. Jesus here is transforming the third commandment of the Ten Commandments of the law into new covenant law. And the third commandment read this way in Exodus 27. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Note real quick the chiasm here in Exodus 20, verse 7, with the emphasis on judgment. You shall not take of the name, you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished, who takes his name in vain. The emphasis in the middle. So by the time of Jesus' day, the Jews were trying to get around keeping the third commandment when making vows by swearing not according to the name of Yahweh, but to things they thought were lesser than Yahweh. And depending on whether you swore by heaven, or by earth, or by Jerusalem, or by the sanctuary, or by the gold of the sanctuary, or by the altar, you wouldn't have to keep your promise. The swearing of vows and oaths had degenerated into a system that indicated when you could lie and when you couldn't. If you swore by the altar, you couldn't, you couldn't lie. If you swore by your, your, your head or your hair, you could lie. And Jesus says here, listen to me. There's way more to the third commandment than you think. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. The principle, be, the principle behind the third commandment to not take the Lord's name in vain is, a, is really the, the prohibition of treating God lightly or dishonoring him in any way. Your entire life is meant to be a reflection of God's supremacy, a supremacy reflected in commandments number one and two. There shall be no other God that you worship, command number one, and command number two, you shall not make God into some creature or idol. Therefore, in commandment number three, because of who God is as the creator, you have a mandate to act in a certain way. And your speech is just the overflow of who you are as a person. Your speech is intertwined and interconnected with all of your actions. Your speech is the spearhead of all that you do and all that you are for the glory of the name of Yahweh. In Exodus, in Exodus chapter 20, when Moses receives the Ten Commandments, uh, right after that is Exodus 21 to 23. We studied that last Friday night. And we learn the logic behind the Ten Commandments. And what you learned is that commandment number three, the commandment James is talking about, and the commandment Jesus is talking about, it, it, it flows throughout all the, three, all the three chapters. All the three commandments is colored by this third commandment. It's the only commandment of the ten that acts this way in these three chapters. 
And the idea is this. Everything you must do, everything you do, must reflect the name of Yahweh. Do not use His name in vain. Do not live in a way that would, would make the Lord's name empty or meaningless. Because people will learn how precious, how valuable the name of Yahweh is by how you love God and others and how honest you are when you speak to them or when you make an oath or a vow. And with that said, go to Zechariah. Go to Zechariah chapter 5. In Zechariah chapter 5, he's giving uh, the, the sixth of eight visions describing the final days when Jesus returns. He's, the, all these visions have to do with the final return of the Lord Jesus when he, establishes king, when he establishes his kingdom on earth, then when he judges all his enemies once and for all. Chapter 5, verses 1, and, 1 through 4. And if, you don't, if you're having trouble finding that, that is right before, uh, what is that? Right before Malachi. So it's the second to the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah 5, 1 through 4. Zechariah says this, Then I lifted up my eyes again and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, This is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side. And everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. And I will make it go forth, declared Yahweh of hosts, and I will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name, and I will spend the night within that house and consume it with its timber and stones. The scroll here, this giant flying scroll represents the curse for everyone who breaks God's law, specifically the Eighth Commandment, everyone who steals, the thief, and the Third Commandment, to not use the Lord's name in vain. Everyone who swears falsely. Everyone, verse 4, everyone who swears falsely by my name. So, Zechariah he cites the third commandment. He cites the eighth commandment. Now, the commandment number eight represents the latter half of the Ten Commandments that deal with love for your neighbor. And Zechariah uses commandment number three to represent the first five commandments of the law that have to do with our love for God. One curse has to do with your love for your neighbor, commandments 5 through 10, represented, it, represented by commandment number 8 to not steal. And the other half of the scroll will curse those who break the first five commandments, our love for God, represented by commandment number 3. And the way the Ten Commandments work is that if you love the... You love God uh, according to the first five commandments of the Ten Commandments, then you will love your neighbor as prescribed in the second five commandments. In other words, Zechariah is saying that when Jesus returns, he will curse and judge those who fail to love their neighbor and those who fail to love Yahweh with all their hearts. And now that we have all that, 
we can understand more clearly why James, go back to James, why James says in verse 12, but above all. Why is this so important? Because this verse 12 is a call to radical truthfulness to other people as an expression of your love for your neighbor that reveals a love for Yahweh. James and Jesus is saying that you have to, when you have to come up with ways to lie, like I'm going to swear by this, the altar or the temple or the sanctuary, and you think, well, I'm not technically using God's name in vain, See, when you do that, you are breaking the third commandment because lying to others as a follower of Yahweh makes God look bad. So, because we represent God's name, when we lie, we, can, we, we tell the world that our God is a liar. We tarnish his name. We stomp on his name. So then, Jesus and James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Then James says this in verse 12, so that you may not fall under judgment. James is talking about the judgment that the third commandment emphasized. And he's talking about the judgment that Zechariah promised. Worldwide judgment of the Lord at his second coming. In Revelation 5, John writes about Zechariah's scroll that Jesus opened. Each of the seven seals of the scroll unleash a different kind of curse on the world. Then the seven seals of the judgment scroll, they turn into seven trumpet judgments and judge the world completely before Jesus established his kingdom. And, John, and James says in verse 12, don't be the kind of person because this judgment is coming. According to the third commandment, according to Zechariah, according to John. Verse 12 is the perfect summary of the entire book of James. It provides this summarizing focal point. Only doers of the law, only doers of the word will go to heaven, not hearers. James says that your speech reveals your eternal destiny. It is the evidence. It is the evidence of, of genuine salvation. If you read Revelation, John says this over and over again, liars will not enter the kingdom of God. Because your mouth is the, is the revealer of your heart. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36 and 37, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Your words will display, will show whether you're justified or whether you're condemned. You think it's careless. You think you can say anything you want. Uh, but no, you will have to give an accounting for that. And so James says that our speech, our words, that he has talked about repeatedly throughout this epistle, reveals whether or not you have a whole heart for God. Your speech and how you talk to others is one of the most effective ways or ways you can love somebody or hate somebody, one of the most powerful ways you can glorify God's name. We live in such a dishonest world, right? Everyone around us lies. Our political lie, leaders lie to us. The media lies to us. Our, our mechanics lie to us. Does anybody know an honest mechanic in the world? Our neighbors lie to us. If people think they can get away with it, they will lie to you. 
So the world really notices when people do not lie. Honesty and truthfulness, it sticks out like a shooting star in a dark sky. James's radical call to radical truthfulness sets us apart from the rest of the world like nothing else, even if it gets us at, in trouble at times. Radical truthfulness by God's people gives this tremendous grace to a confused, deceived, lying world. I had a buddy of mine back in the day, a good friend of mine, he, he had a really high-up job. He would pick stocks for stock managers, a really fancy job, and he made a mistake. He wrote a number down in a spreadsheet somewhere, and he could have got away with it. And it was kind of important, but not really important. He could have just kind of took the easy road, but he confessed it. He went to his boss, and he said, you know that spreadsheet I did? This number, I, I made a mistake. I, I, I put a, the wrong number down. Boss well, said, thank you for that. Thank you for your honesty. He left the job to look for another job, high competitive, big salary job. And so the, 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 the employer that he wanted to work for called his old employer, and the old employer brought up that, 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 that instance. And he said, this man is an honest man. There was a mistake that was made, and he confessed that to us, and the other employer hired him. See, this is how we stand out to the world. That a little mistake, unbelievers remember. So a wholehearted believer has honest lips, number one. Point number two, in verses 13 through 18, James says that a wholehearted believer speaks to God all the time with the help of others, trusting in the power of prayer. Let me say that one more time. A wholehearted believer speaks to God all the time with the help of others, trusting in the power of prayer. In these five verses, James offers his final basic portrayal of a wholehearted Christian. The life that is dominated by living faith will turn to God often and deeply amid the varied experiences and vicissitudes we encounter Wholehearted Christianity is this constant turning to God in all circumstances that gives power to the Christian life. Every time we pray, we turn our hearts to God. And James was no stranger to prayer. James was a doer of the Word and not just a hearer only. James had a reputation for being a prayer, prayer warrior in the early church. The, the, the early church historian Eusebius uh, uh, said, wrote that he had a reputation for having knees as hard like those of a camel. He had camel knees. And if you've ever seen a, a camel in the desert before, maybe later on you can Google a camel knees, and what you'll find is that most camels in the desert, their knees are calloused. The, the fur is kind of ripped up apart because of the way they sit on a hot desert floor. And when the way they sit is kind of interesting because it seems like they're praying. And so James had this reputation for being a, 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 a camel-kneed prayer warrior. And so in verses 13 through 18, James commends prayer in every kind of situation in verses 13 and 14. Then he tells us that prayer is a church-wide project in verse 16, and then finally, from the second half of verse 16 
to verse 18, James writes about the power of prayer. Let's look at verse 13 and 14 first. We, should, we are to pray in every kind of circumstance. If we're honest, uh, prayer for most of us is our biggest weakness. If there's one aspect of my life that I would want to do way more of, it isn't studying the Bible. I mean, I, I'm okay with that. Uh, not, it's not reading the Bible. I, I do a decent job with that. It's not serving the church. It's not even evangelism. The one primary means of grace I, I neglect the most is prayer. I, I struggle to pray. And this is common for many believers. And in verse 13, the, the, the main idea behind verse 13 is that we need to pray in every circumstance, in every situation. And, and James, he breaks down these, all these circumstances into two contrasting situations. Uh, this is the A to Z spectrum of prayer. We, we pray during these two circumstances, and, and, and we pray for every situation in between. That's the idea. Uh, the first circumstance, uh, verse 13, is, any, is anyone among you suffering? Is there anyone in this room that is suffering? James says, then he must pray. In other words, turn to God in your trials. Turn to God in your suffering. One of the main ways we turn our hearts to God in trouble and misfortune is through prayer. When you're suffering, it is so very important that you pour out your heart to God in prayer. You let it all go. You don't hold back a single heartache to God in prayer. The Bible gives us full license to lament about all the hardships we're going through. Describe your emotions and feelings to God. Pray with detail. Pray out loud, vocally, verbally, like you're really talking to a real person because you are talking to a real person. God is more real than any person in the universe. Pray with this sorrowful articulation. Ask God to take away your trial and ask God to give you the strength to endure the trial if he doesn't take away the trial. Is anybody here suffering? Let him pray. Then he says this. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. See, often when we're encouraged or we're happy, whenever we're in a good mood, we just kind of leave it at that. We just stop there. That's true for me. You know, I'm in a good mood, and, I, and, and sometimes I want to treat myself to an ice cream cone, you know? And I tell my wife, i got to take the kids to get some ice cream, honey. Or you buy a new toy from the mall, or you buy a, a new pair of pants or a purse, or you, you, go to a, you go to Starbucks, get that specialty drink. And, and James says... That's okay, but that's not good enough. If there's any ounce of joy, any happiness, any peace at all in your heart, sing praises to God. Because he's the one that gave you that blessing. He's the one solely responsible for arranging the circumstances that work for your favor. So praise him for that. Thank him. Worship him. Exalt him. If you're happy... At all this week, even a little bit, God is responsible for that. So praise him. Tell him. But the main point of verse 13 is that we should pray on every occasion. Pray in suffering. Pray when you're cheerful. That's just the north-south coordinates of prayer. Prayer in suffering and praying when you're cheerful. Those are just the east-west boundaries of prayer. The implication is that we are to pray for everything in between suffering and joy. 
There's suffering, there's joy, and pray for everything in between those two points. Are you tempted to get angry? Pray for a sober mind. Pray for the strength to keep your mouth closed. Are you tempted to lust in your heart? Pray that God would crucify your desires and remind you that you died with Christ 2,000 years ago. Years ago. Are you afraid? Are you worried? Then, then, then pray and ask God to help you remember that he's sovereign over everything. Pray when you're suffering. Pray when you're joyful. Pray when you're worried. Pray when you're weak. Pray when you're sinning. Pray when you're confused, when you're lonely, when you're tired, when you're full of energy, when you're bored. Pray at home. Pray at church, at work. Pray at the restaurant. When you have a spare minute, don't check your phone. Pray for someone. Pray for your brother and sister in Christ. Pray for your parents. Pray for your children. Pray for your pastor. In every occasion of your life, big or small, we have a reason to pray and praise God. And James adds one more thing to pray for in verse 14 and 15. Pray when you're sick. Verse 14 says, Is any among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and there to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Pray when you're sick. The kind of sickness James is talking about isn't a, isn't a common cold or, or an ailment. It's when you're so sick you have to call the elders to come to you because you can't go to them. We're talking about an illness, a life and death predict, predicament. And, and, and James assumes you've exhausted every uh, medical intervention possible. You've taken your medicine, you've gone to the doctors, you've had your surgeries. So now with all your earthly options exhausted, instead of falling into despair and hopelessness, call the elders to your home to come and pray for you. And they are to come, and then they are to, verse 14, they are to anoint you with oil. And this is kind of a, a symbol it is a symbol that you are the focus of God's special attention. You are be, being consecrated unto God so that he can heal you. And it's a, it's a participle phrase, and that means it's an activity subsidiary under the praying being done. The most important part is the prayer, not the oil. So if the elders forget the oil, don't worry about it. Because the prayer is what's being emphasized. And it's being done, according to verse 14, in the name of the Lord. The elders are trustfully depending upon Christ and his authority over sickness and over life and over death itself. And then verse 15 makes this bold claim about this kind of prayer. James says, And the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. See, the faith exercised in prayer is faith in the God who sovereignly accomplishes his will. When we pray, our faith recognizes explicitly or implicitly the overruling providential purposes of God. We may at times be given assurance of that will. And that will enable us to pray with absolute confidence in God's plan to answer our prayer. But we must admit that these cases are rare. More rare even than our subjective emotional desires that would lead us to to, to hope for a, for a healing. So prayer for healing must be qualified by this recognition that God's will in the matter is supreme. In other words, prayer for healing 
offered in the confidence that God will answer that prayer, does bring healing, but only when it is God's will to heal that person. Sometimes you can be incredibly confident that God will heal you and be sincerely wrong. I knew a great brother, brother in the Lord, a godly pastor who contracted cancer. And, you know, if, when you're a pastor, you've you got to go through a lot. You know, there's, there's hard times, there's tough times. And, and he was just uh, at a place where his ministry was thriving, flourishing, and, and uh, we would meet. We have a group of pastors we meet uh, every uh, once a month and we, on a Zoom meeting, and he was dying, and, and it was a real severe cancer. And uh, about a few weeks before he died, he, he, he was on the conference call, and he said, you know what, I am confident God is going to heal me. I am confident. I mean, absolutely. And we all didn't say anything. We hoped it was true. But we knew at the end of the day that it was ultimately the sovereign will of God whether or not he would live. And he, unfortunately, he went to be with the Lord. And so we can have, sometimes we can have this confidence that isn't true because ultimately it depends on God's sovereign will. But we pray with faith nonetheless. We pray believing in the power of God. And then he says this in verse 15, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. The key word in this phrase is if. Sin can be the cause of physical sickness, but it doesn't have to be. Think of Job and his friends. And God doesn't have to heal you even if your sin is the cause of the sickness, and even if you repent and confess those sins to the elders. God is not a genie in a bottle where you can manipulate them like that. I had a friend in seminary whose brother walked away from the Lord. He, he left his wife. He divorced her for another, uh, another woman. He rebelliously married that woman. And soon after, God gave my friend's brother a terminal brain tumor. And on his deathbed, my friend told me that his brother repented. He confessed his sin. And yet God decided to take his life anyways. It, it was too late. And so in verse 16, James says, don't wait before it's too late to be healed. Confess your sins to one another early. Confess your sins as soon as possible. Make the confession of sins a daily, regular practice of your Christian life. Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that, so that you may be healed. Do this all the time. See, we are to pray in every kind of circumstance, in our joy, and our suffering. And next, James tells us in the beginning of verse 16 that prayer is a team sport. That prayer is a church community effort. And yes, the elders need to come and exercise spiritual oversight, but James wants to emphasize in verse 16 that all believers have the privilege and the responsibility to pray for healing. That the, that the power of prayer doesn't reside in the office of eldership and in, in the pastors. No, the power of prayer finds its source in God Himself. But this is interesting. Before James exhorts the entire body to pray for one another, one another, he first says in verse 16 that we need to confess our sins to one another. See, the New Testament doesn't say a lot about our physical well-being. 
Um, the Bible never co connects diet and exercise to our physical health, although certainly that is a factor. Instead, here, James says there is a connection between the confession of our sin and our spiritual well-being to our physical well-being. That our soul and our bodies are so intertwined and interrelated in this powerful, mysterious way that, that our, the, the condition of our spiritual lives affects the well-being of our physical lives. And God also, in addition to that, He disciplines us with physical sickness and, and, and disease and illness when we sin. So therefore, we are always to be in the practice of of confessing our sins to each other. It doesn't mean, though, if you're sick, it's because you sinned. That's not necessarily the case, but it can be. That's a possibility. The best thing, brothers and sisters, you could ever do for your health, your spiritual health, and your physical health isn't taking vitamins. It's not going to the gym. Rather, it is the habitual practice of confession to your brothers and sisters in Christ. I would even say this. It is impossible to grow in your Christian faith without the regular confession of sin to your brothers and sisters in Christ. I would say that it is almost impossible to have any real measure of joy and peace without this regular practice of confessing our sins to each other. See, sin often demands that it have you all by yourself. Sin always wants to pull you away from the life and community of the church because the more isolated you are, the more power sin has to destroy your life. But when you're regularly confessing your sins to your brothers and sisters in Christ, it tears down this wall of destructive autonomy. Confession rips away the mask of hypocrisy. It allows the power of grace and love to freely flow within the community of the local church. Confession also fosters humility. Confession in the presence of another believer brings about the most profoundest kind of humiliation. One writer said this about confession. Confession hurts. It cuts a man down. It is a deadly blow to pride. To stand there before a brother as a sinner is a, is a humiliation that is almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man dies a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. And yes, we confess our sins to God. Ultimately, He's the one who has the power to forgive. We don't. We're not mediators to each other. We're not priests. Jesus is the only mediator between a holy God and sinful man. But there are times when we need help from each other. And so we confess our sins to our brothers and sisters in Christ when we need more prayer for the power to overcome sins that seems to, all, that, that seems to always be getting the upper hand because when peop, more people pray, there is more power in prayer. When more people pray for you, there is more power in prayer. That's what verse 14 is saying. That's what verse 16 is saying. Because the more people pray, 
the more glory God receives from his people when God answers that prayer. We confess our sins to others because there are times when we have trouble believing that God could ever forgive us. Sometimes when we confess our sins to the Lord, we we don't believe that the cross is enough. We have a hard time believing that faith is, is sufficient to receive total and absolute forgiveness. And so there are times when we need to tell brothers and sisters, uh, tell, confess our sins to them so that they, with their voices, with their faith, can remind us and assure us that we are forgiven. Because, because sometimes the feelings we feel inside are not true according to reality. Like sometimes, uh, in this day and age, there are boys and girls who think they're not boys and girls. Their feelings tell them uh, something uh, opposed or contrary to reality. And spiritually, this is true too. There are times when our feelings tell us we're guilty, even though we, we repented, even though we confessed, when the spiritual reality is that God has forgiven us in Christ. And what do we need to hear in those times? We need other people to remind us, listen, you're a boy. You're a girl. Listen, you're forgiven. Jesus died for you. So we need to confess our sins because of that. We confess our sins to one another when the guilt after confession to the Lord doesn't go away. We confess our sins when we've committed sin against an individual and the sin has hurt that relationship in any way. We ask for forgiveness. And it doesn't matter if the other person sinned against you first and they didn't ask for forgiveness. It doesn't matter if our sin was just a response to the other sin. Sometimes couples can be like that. I'm not not going to ask for forgiveness. I'm not going to say sorry. She started it. He started it. Oh, he, he committed, his sin was much better, worse than mine. He hasn't asked for, for forgiveness. No, it doesn't matter. That's between them and the Lord. You, whatever part you played, irrespective of how they contributed to it, irrespective of whether they asked for forgiveness or not, you have a responsibility to say, hey, you know what? I sinned against you. This is how we ask somebody for forgiveness. John, Tina, I have sinned against you by doing this. Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? One more thing about confession. Confess real sins. Like show your full hand. You know, when I confess my sins, I I throw it down. I I just show you my full, full hand. Hey, here it is. It's ugly. I tell my wife, you can, you can tell anybody about my sins. I don't care. Why? Because I hate my sinfulness so much that I desperately covet your prayers. I do not care about what I might lose in my confession. Even as a, as a pastor, you have this pressure. But, but I want something more valuable than any earthly position or blessing. I just want to be, be more godly today than I was yesterday. And confessing my sins to you and you praying for me is going to help me do that. 
When you confess your sins, live dangerously and show us what you got. Lay down all your cards. Listen to me. If your confession to uh, if your confession of sins to others, if it is never ugly, if it is never shameful, if it is never humiliating, or if it's if it's never embarrassing, you're not doing it right. If the sins we confess to each other are always neat and tidy and safe, we're just playing around. We're just playing Christian games. That kind of confessional life shows we care more about what people think about us than what our Lord thinks about us. So where are we? We we pray in every kind of circumstance, rain or shine. We, We learn that prayer is a team sport. It is a community effort. All the church must be involved in constant prayer. And thirdly, James, in the second half of verse 18, all the way to verse in the second half of verse 16 all the way to verse 18 describes the power of prayer. The power of prayer. James says in the second half of verse 16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. In other words, prayer is powerful. You know, whenever a national tragedy strikes the usual, and the usual public call for prayer ensues, many people scoff at that, right? They'll say, I don't want your silly prayers. I want action. I want new legislation. And they say that because they think prayer is the highest exercise in utter futility. But James says, if you think that way, you are absolutely wrong. In the New Testament, there is not a hint, a single place, where any writer says that civic national laws have any kind of power. Not a single verse. You can't find it anywhere in the New Testament. Scripture has the opposite view that our culture has. Our culture says, oh, you dumb Christians, we don't need your prayers. We need better laws. We We need better politicians. But James says in verse 16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Prayer is powerful. Don't let anyone tell you differently. Do you believe in the gospel? Are you justified? Are you growing in the Lord? Are you a doer of the word? James says, then pray. Go to others who are like that and ask for prayer. A church filled with righteous people who pray is packed with spiritual power. Jesus said that prayer can move mountains. He said in Matthew 17, if you pray with this growing, vibrant faith, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible to you. James says here in verse 17 and 18 that prayer can bring about a drought to an entire wicked nation. He uses Elijah as this example, the Old Testament prophet. Verse 17, Elijah, with a man with a nature like ours, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Elijah was, uh, wanted to pray on a wicked nation, Israel, and so he said he wanted as punishment for this apostate nation 
that they would receive a drought. A drought was a symbol of God's curse. Verse 18, and then after three and a half years, he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And, and James, he wants to highlight two things about Elijah. He wants to uh, emphasize two things about Elijah's prayer life. Number one, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Yes, he was a prophet. Yes, he had a unique role in God's plan. But when it came to prayer, Elijah was a fallen sinner like you and me. When it came to prayer, there was nothing Elijah had that we don't have. He was a fallen sinner who prayed with faith. You and I are fallen sinners. But if we pray with steady, consistent faith, God will powerfully answer your prayers too. James wants to emphasize the second thing about Elijah, verse 17. Number one, he was a man with a nature like ours. And number two, he prayed earnestly. He prayed earnestly. Literally, he prayed with prayer. He prayed with his entire heart. He gave himself wholly to prayer. His prayer wasn't this, this laid-back request like, you know, God, it would be pretty nice if... Uh, it didn't rain on this wicked king and nation. That would be pretty cool. If it doesn't, I don't really mind. No, he passionately poured out his heart to heaven. Are there times in your life when you pray desperately? When you pray like, like everything depended on it? You're like, Lord, you have to answer this prayer. And when you pray that way, it feels so unnatural because most of the time we pray these laid-back prayers like, oh, you know. But see, those times in desperate prayer, that is supposed to be the norm. Like That is supposed to be normal. It feels unnatural because we never pray like that very often. But James says, no, when you're praying desperately, you got it. That's how you have to pray all the time. That doesn't mean that God will answer your prayer tomorrow. Remember, to God, a thousand years is like one day. See, sometimes we pray for a few months, we pray for a year or two, and we think, oh, that, that was useless. I, I, prayed for, I prayed for three months. But to God, it was like one second. It was two seconds. To God, he, he, he looks at us, and, and we pray for two seconds, and he says, that's it? You prayed for two seconds. No. Keep praying with faith that prayer is powerful, that it can move mountains, that it can stop the rain, that Jesus, what Jesus said is true, that nothing will be impossible to you. So always pray big, bold prayers. Pray Christ-centered prayers. Pray prayers saturated with the Word. Keep praying. Never stop praying. Ask others to pray for you until you die. There's a story I heard of a father who was praying for his children to come to know the Lord. He prayed for years and years. He prayed for decades and decades. And his kids never turned to Christ. And he died praying. And his kids were unconverted when he died. And then when he died, at the funeral, when the pastor preached the gospel, his kids turned to Christ. See, in God's eyes, this man, he prayed for decades and decades. It was, to God's eyes, it was like days. 
But the man prayed powerful, bold prayers. Never stop believing that prayer is powerful. Pray like that all the time. In the 4th century, in the city of Antioch in Syria, early, early church father John of Antioch, nicknamed Chrysostom, or Golden Mouth, he said this about the power of prayer. Listen to this. The potency of prayer has subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions. It has hushed anarchy to rest. It's extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, broken the chains of death, expanded the, the, the destinies of heaven, assuaged disease, dispelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in, in its course, arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. There is in it an all-sufficient panoply, a treasure undiminished, a mine which is never exhausted, a sky unobscured by clouds, a heaven unruffled by the storm. It is the root, the fountain, the mother of a thousand blessings. What is he describing? Is he describing an army? Is he describing a great king? Is he describing uh, somebody with a lot of wealth? No, he's describing prayer. We can pray that way. We have that kind of power. So pray. Pray. When you were little, your parents taught you how to say please or thank you. I remember my dad, he would, when I would ask him something, he would say, it's not can I, it's may I. I would say, Dad, can, can I go outside? Nope, it's may I. <laughs> he, would make, he would make me write a hundred times. May I, may I, may I, may I. And then when I was done, I was so excited. I would say, Dad, can I go outside? No. You've got to write it again. But when God, when we grew up, when God saved us, God began to teach us to talk in a new way too. See, before you got saved, you used to be a liar. You used to lie, you used to fudge the truth. But when God saved you, now he says, you need to be honest and speak this radical truthfulness, even if it hurts you. Before God saved you, you, you never prayed to God, and when you did, you just said, please, I just want this, I want that. No, now he says, you pray in every circumstance, in blessing, when he gives you things, when you're worried, when you're tired, when you're struggling, pray for him, believing everything. This is what wholehearted Christianity is. And we have one more lesson next Sunday about wholehearted Christianity in the book of James in these last two verses, 19 and 20, when James describes, when he describes what does real love look like. You say you love each other. You say you love your brother and sister, but let me tell you what real love looks like. And so we'll have to come back next Sunday to, to, to learn more about that. Let's pray.